Hello, and welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps ease you into uncomfortable conversations about racism. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And originally, this week, we had planned to release an episode on voting, which is an issue that is becoming incredible increasingly crucial in the fight against racism to ensure access to everybody in this COVID-19 era. But that'll come next week, because as the news unfolded this past week, we realized there was another issue that we really needed to talk about right now. And that is President Trump's return to the campaign trail because of where and when he's doing it. Now, I have to be honest, Misasha, until you brought this to my attention, I was like, what are you talking about, Juneteenth? <laughs> so I appreciate you being like, girlfriend, like, look this up. We're doing an episode on it. Because earlier this past week, Trump announced that his campaign rallies are going to resume on Juneteenth, June 19th in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which he did shift shortly before we recorded this to June 20th, quote, out of respect. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But at first I was like, okay, like I said, so what? But to people who are in the know, June 19th in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is more than just this interesting thing. It's an announcement. And even though literally as we're recording this, he announced that he moved his rally by a day, that does not hide what might be going on here. So let's unpack a little bit more about Juneteenth in Tulsa to talk about why this may be an invitation to hate. And so this is my granddaughter of a Civil War historian, you know, self out in full force right now, because Juneteenth is not something that everyone knows about. So what is Juneteenth anyway? According to NBC News, Juneteenth is the oldest known celebration honoring the end of slavery in the United States. So on June 19, 1865, Union General Gordon Granger led thousands of federal troops to Galveston, Texas, to announce the Civil War had ended and slaves had been freed. Approximately a quarter of a million Texan slaves had no idea that their freedom had been secured by the government, and Texas was the last state of the Confederacy to hear about the Emancipation Proclamation. And you might be wondering, why is this? So let's back up. Because there was no Twitter. Right, I know. <laughs> right. There was no social media blast to be like, yo, we have this thing called the Emancipation Proclamation. You're free now. Okay, so talk about why. All right. So you may recall from elementary school social studies what the Emancipation Proclamation was. So in the condensed version, many of us learned that this executive order meant immediate freedom for slaves throughout the nation. But if you really think about it, and because the country was in the midst of the Civil War, those states that weren't in the Union anymore, the Confederacy, didn't adhere to the proclamation, and slaves in those states remained unfree. So in the other words, if you weren't in the Union, you didn't really care about the Emancipation Proclamation. You weren't exactly a Lincoln supporter at that time. And so that document didn't mean anything. I never would have thought of that, to be honest. I remember when my kid was reciting the Emancipation Proclamation to me in kindergarten, and I never considered that the slaves in the South were still bound in slavery because they didn't care. They were in the Confederacy, the states, I mean. Yeah, they had like a full blackout on that slave like the Twitter feed there. Like no one. It's like the China's curtain on social media. We will not. Right. That was it. Dung dung. Like you're not full on censorship there. So there's also another common misconception about the Emancipation Proclamation. So even though much of the language in the actual document suggests otherwise, Lincoln's primary objective in having the Emancipation Proclamation was not to make the lives of those in bondage better. So rather, his real goal was to preserve the Union. 
In August 1862, the editor of the New York Tribune, Horace Greeley, published an editorial address to Lincoln pressuring his stance on slavery and urging him to abolish it. And Lincoln responded in an open letter to Greeley, published in the Tribune that same August. And in that letter, he wrote, My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union and is not either to save or destroy slavery. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save this Union. So he was all about unification at whatever cost, you know, and if abolishing slavery was part of it, then that was awesome. But Lincoln and the Union Army used slavery as a political motive to justify strength and military endeavors against the Confederacy. So black soldiers, once Lincoln passed the Emancipation Proclamation, black soldiers were able to fight for the Union. So though they faced discrimination and often performed menial roles because of presumed incompetence, they increased the Union Army in size. Sit with that one for a moment, because in recent days, we've also talked about, you know, the role of black soldiers in the military, often fighting for freedoms that they didn't enjoy and often being, you know, as we're talking about here, mistreated along the way. Well, and literally, I think in this last week, certainly within the last month, the very first black Air Force chief of staff was appointed. There's never been a person of color, like a black man or black person in charge at that level in the Air Force. So I posted that on our Facebook feed because it was just like he was very, he spoke. It was interesting. Yeah. Wow. But that also goes against everything we learned about Lincoln. Yeah. Oh, he's a champion for slavery. He was so human. But then there's all those memes that were like, let's look at all the presidents who had slaves. Yeah. And I mean, admittedly, in doing in signing the Emancipation Proclamation, that was huge. But it's important to understand all the motivations. You know, we talked about in that episode, Who Controls History, how when you look at why the South succeeded from the Union, slavery and the economic motivations behind, you know, free labor was huge. And oftentimes other reasons are given for why they succeeded or why the Civil War happened. So I think it's really important to continue to think critically about our nation's history. All right. So back to the end of the Civil War. The Civil War officially ended in April of 1865. So Fast forwarding to June, when General Granger and his troops go to Galveston, Texas, they announced General Orders Number 3, which stated the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. So it took basically two months for them to roll down to Texas and be like, yo, you guys are free. So... Throughout the war, and this is partially due to the fact that throughout the war, Texas was not as closely monitored as the other battle states. So for this reason, a whole bunch of slave owners went to Texas with their slaves. So with its relatively negligible Union presence, slavery continued there for much longer. And after the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect, slaves in war-torn states often escaped behind Union lines or fought on its behalf. So you've got you know the Emancipation Proclamation, but not everything was immediate. And I think that's really, really important to consider and why Juneteenth is so important. So the slaves who got the news were really excited to hear of their freedom on Juneteenth, obviously. Yet freedom didn't come at, you know, just in that instance for everyone in Texas. Some people who should have been freed continued to work through the harvest season because their masters withheld this announcement to reap more wages out of their slaves. This left many former slaves treated as though they were still in bondage. In her book, Lone Star Pass, Susan Merritt reported 
lots of Negroes were killed after freedom. Bushwhacked, shot down while they were trying to get away. You could see lots of Negroes hanging from trees in Sabine Bottom right after freedom. I'm just like, right? Like you think about, you should have been freed. Yeah. And instead you were killed. Right. Or we just didn't tell you to because we needed free labor. Mm -hmm. So in the 1870s, five years after the end of the Civil War, a group of former slaves pooled $800 together through local churches to purchase 10 acres of land and create Emancipation Park to host future Juneteenth celebrations in modern day Houston. Finally, over a century later... In 1980, Emancipation Day in Texas became a legal state holiday in recognition of Juneteenth. However, state offices do not completely close, as it is considered a partial staffing holiday. Elsewhere, the holiday is also referred to as Emancipation Day, Freedom Day, and Black Independence Day. 47 of the 50 United States and the District of Columbia have recognized Juneteenth as either a state holiday or ceremonial holiday, a day of observance. The three states that do not recognize Juneteenth are Hawaii and the Dakotas, North Dakota and South Dakota. So clearly this date is significant, as was Trump's decision to try and resume his campaign rallies on that day, as he originally stated. But here's where it's like double whammy. Because why did he pick Tulsa, Oklahoma? It's not like he was just driving through there on his way to the golf course, right? Yeah, and it's not just COVID-related, right? Right. So during the Tulsa Race Massacre, which is also known as the Tulsa Race Riot, which occurred over 18 hours on May 31st to June 1st in 1921, a white mob attacked residents' homes and businesses in the predominantly black Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa, Oklahoma. This event, the Tulsa Race Massacre, remains one of the worst incidents of racial violence in United States history and one of the least known. So you guys may not have heard of this if you're listening right now. The reason is news reports were largely squelched, despite the fact that hundreds of people were killed and thousands of people were left homeless. Keep in mind that at that time, there were 10,000 black residents of Tulsa. So what caused the riots? On May 30th in 1921, a young black teenager named Dick Rowland entered an elevator at the Drexel Building, which is an office building on South Main Street in Tulsa. At some point after that, the young white elevator operator named Sarah Page screamed. Rowland fled the scene, police were called, and the next morning they arrested Rowland. And by that time, rumors of what supposedly happened on the elevator had circulated through the city's white community. There was a whole front page story in the Tulsa Tribune that afternoon that reported that police had arrested Roland for sexually assaulting Page. So then that night, as evening fell, an angry white mob was gathering outside the courthouse demanding that the sheriff hand over Roland. Sheriff Willard McCullough refused. And his men barricaded the top floor to protect the black teenager. And at around 9 p.m., a group of about 25 armed black men, including many World War I veterans, went to the courthouse to offer help guarding Roland. And after the sheriff turned them away, some of the white mob tried unsuccessfully to break into the National Guard armory nearby. With rumors still flying of a possible lynching, a group of about like 75 armed black men returned to the courthouse shortly after 10 p.m., where they were met by some 1,500 white men, some of whom also carried weapons. After shots were fired and chaos broke out, the outnumbered group of black men retreated to Greenwood. And over the next several hours, now Greenwood was that predominantly black area, and over the next several hours, groups of white Tulsans, some of whom were deputized and given weapons by city officials, committed numerous acts of violence against black people, including shooting an unarmed man in a movie theater. 
And Greenwood actually was called the Black Wall Street at that time because it was a prosperous part of Tulsa. So this isn't, you know, we're not, if you're trying to picture this in your head, this is a well-to-do area. This is not, you know, it's not some battered, slum-ridden area. This is not how you're probably picturing it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I keep thinking about what is happening current day or what was happening current day with people with looting and targets and all this sort of stuff, right? Yeah. So with all of this stuff happening, there became a false belief that there was a large scale insurrection among Black Tulsans. And that meant that included reinforcements from nearby towns and cities with large African-American populations. And that sort of fueled this growing hysteria over that like evening. And as dawn broke on June 1st, Thousands of white citizens poured into the Greenwood district. Again, you said it was a really nice area, looting and burning homes and businesses over an area of 35 city blocks. Firefighters who arrived to help put out these fires later testified that rioters had threatened them with guns and forced them to leave. So there's fire burning. Firefighters are trying to help and they're being pushed away by the white rioters, right? Then according to a later Red Cross estimate, some 1,256 houses were burned. 215 others were looted, though not torched. Two newspapers, a school, a library, a hospital, churches, hotels, and stores, and so many other Black-owned businesses were among the buildings destroyed or damaged by the fire. So by the time the National Guard arrived and declared martial law shortly before noon, the riot basically had ended. And though some of the National Guardsmen helped put out fires, they also imprisoned many Black Tulsans. And by June 2nd, so just within a few days, about 6,000 people were under armed guard at the local fairgrounds. Can you believe that? I mean, especially when you're thinking about it, like you were saying, juxtaposed against what has just been happening in our cities. I mean, this is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. In the hours after the Tulsa race massacre, all charges against Dick Rowland were dropped. The police concluded that he had most likely just stumbled into Paige or stepped on her foot. That is what sparked this. Okay, so just think about Amy Cooper right now. And again, the screams of the white women, and maybe a lot of you are white women listening, just think about the power of that voice. Anyway, Dick Rowland, he was kept safely under guard in the jail during the whole riot, and he left Tulsa the next morning and reportedly never returned. Smart move on Dick Rowland's part, for sure. Right? Yeah. So for decades, there were no public ceremonies, no memorials for any of the dead, or any efforts to commemorate the events of those sort of two-ish, three-ish days, May 31st to June 1st, 1921. Instead, there was a deliberate effort to cover them up. So the Tulsa Tribune removed that front page story of May 31st that had sparked the chaos from all of its sort of historic bound volumes. And scholars later discovered that police and state militia archives about the riot were missing as well. Like, talk about erasing history. Mm-hmm. As a result, until recently, the Tulsa race massacre was rarely mentioned in history books, taught in schools, or even talked about. Scholars began to really dive into the story of the riot in the 1970s after its 50th anniversary had passed. And finally, on the riot's 75th anniversary, so in 1996, a service was held at Mount Zion Baptist Church, which rioters had burned to the ground, and a memorial was finally placed in front of Greenwood Cultural Center. That's amazing. I mean, to think about really burying history, I mean, trying to completely erase it, probably because it was a really shameful part of history. But, you know, I'm thinking about, I only remember seeing a lot of information about the Tulsa race massacre in the past couple of years. I don't remember learning about it. All right, fast forwarding back to present day, although it's sort of impossible to separate 
some of what we just talked about from present day. And when Trump had originally announced that he was returning to the campaign trail on Juneteenth, his campaign aide, Katrina Pearson, said in a statement in an attempt to defend the timing of the rally that the party of Abraham Lincoln, the Civil War victor, which at the time was the Republican Party, as we have talked about in past episodes, Republicans are proud of the history of Juneteenth. She added that Mr. Trump had built a record of success for Black Americans. So when we talk about critical thinking, how does that statement sit with you? Well, if you're reading the notes that, you know, I'm reading the notes that we prepared for this and I just wrote in caps, stop it right now because I couldn't. I just, <laughs> I have limits and that. You don't think Mr. Trump has built a record of success for Black Americans? Um, I think he has built something for Black Americans. I do not think it's, I would not call it a record of success. No. So that wasn't the only statement that the Trump White House issued. Meanwhile, White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McAnney called the date a meaningful day to Mr. Trump. Quote, it's a day where he wants to share some of the progress that's been made as we look forward and more that needs to be done, especially as we're looking at police reform. She continued. <laughs> My notes here just say in all caps, I don't think that's why it's meaningful to him. Because I don't even know how she said that with a straight face. You know, Maybe it's about the cover up. <laughs> Maybe it's about the removal of history. I don't know, but... I don't sense sincerity or integrity in those comments. And I do almost feel like it's cruel. It's not a coincidence. Someone there made that decision consciously to reignite the presidential campaign in that location on that day. My guess is Stephen Miller. You know how we've talked about him. We have talked about Stephen Miller. He's still there. He's still involved. Yeah. So... This seems to us like a partly desperate move and a partly terrifying move, regardless of the fact that he pushed the date of the rally by a day, that original intent is still there. And make no mistake, that original date and location pick is not just because Oklahoma is doing so well on the COVID-19 front or that Trump's schedule just happens to be largely free on June 19th. There is a deeper message in this. And going back to what we have been talking about this episode about critical thinking, it's really important to consider that. And as we consider our country's past and the legacy of systemic oppression and racism, understanding history here means that we look a little more critically at what's been shown to us. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 